Good evening, everybody, or I guess maybe I should say good morning. Welcome back to another episode of Stapleton Baptist in Quarantine. I'm glad y'all are back with us. We're back in the book of Revelation this week. I trust that you enjoyed uh, the worship that Mark and the Bowers family provided us in, in the way of music. Um, hopefully it prepared you uh, for a sermon and some time in God's Word this morning. So I'll go ahead and pray, uh, and then we'll get started. And you'll have the opportunity right now. It would be a great time to flip in your copy of God's Word over to Revelation chapter 19. We're going to be looking at the first five verses this morning. So Revelation chapter 19, verses 1 through 5. I'll pray and we'll go ahead and get started. Father, thank you so much for today. Thank you for the ability to study your word together like this. Um, pray that you bless us with the opportunity to be back together in person again soon. And that you glorify yourself that way, Lord. Help us this morning to understand your goodness a little bit better and to understand what that means for us. In Jesus' name, amen. So if you've gone ahead and gotten your copy of God's Word out, I uh, want to give you the opportunity to read along with me. We're going to start out by just reading our text, and then I want to look at, at three truths we can learn because of God's goodness. So first, Revelation chapter 19, starting in verse 1. After these things, I heard a loud voice of a great multitude in heaven saying, Alleluia, salvation and glory and honor and power belong to the Lord our God. For true and righteous are his judgments, because he has judged the great harlot who corrupted the earth with her fornication, and he has avenged on her the blood of his servants shed by her. Again they said, Alleluia, her smoke rises up forever and ever, and the twenty-four elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshipped God who sat on the throne, saying, Amen, Alleluia. Then a voice came from the throne, saying, Praise our God, all you his servants and those who fear him, both small and and great. So we're going to be looking at this passage today, and we're going to be using this passage to think about the goodness of God. Now, we talk about goodness a lot. We use the word good a lot. We say God is good a lot. But what do we actually mean when we say that? What do we mean when we say God is good? Uh, well, maybe I should clarify a little bit by saying I want to say that God is not just good. God is goodness. And without God, there is no such thing as good. So first, let's talk about how God is the standard of goodness. God is the standard of goodness. Uh, so when we talk about good, what I mean is you can't talk about good without bringing God into it. You say, oh, well, maybe I can. Maybe I know some good people. I mean, maybe they're not as good as God. But no, I'm going to make the argument that you can't even do that. Uh, so <clears throat> Let's look at these first couple of verses here for just a minute. So you've got this scene in heaven, right? Uh, the John, the revelator, the author of this book, the human author of this book, um, is in this part of this vision where he's in heaven, and this is a vision that the risen Lord Jesus Christ um, is giving him, letting him know the things that are going to happen in the future. So uh, they are not happening while John is seeing this. John is seeing them kind of from the outside in is, is what it's going to be in the future. And the great city Babylon <clears throat> has just fallen. We just covered that. We took a break last week, but as we've been studying Revelation. We've just seen the fall of Babylon. I encourage you to go back, watch those videos. You can catch them on Facebook or on the website. Um, the, the city Babylon has just fallen. You can get a better explanation of who Babylon is there. Uh, but now, rather than seeing the perspective of the people on earth, which is what we've had the last couple of weeks, now we see the perspective of the people in heaven. So John hears a loud voice of a great multitude in heaven saying, what? Saying, Alleluia. Now this is an actual Hebrew word. This is the word Hallel, 
and Yah. Together, hallelujah, we praise God, Yahweh. So hallelujah literally means we praise God. So the first thing that we have happening in this scene in heaven is that you've got a, a kind of, they have in church. That's what's going on to, to, to use to use just the colloquial term, that they're looking at Babylon fall and just a, a worship session breaks out. That They say, hallelujah, Yahweh is praiseworthy. We praise Yahweh. We praise God. And then they say salvation and glory and honor and power belong to the Lord our God. So Yahweh, God, is praiseworthy. Now why? They say he's praiseworthy, one, because salvation, glory, honor, and power belong to the Lord our God. Now, I don't want us to misread this and, and lower the intensity of what this multitude in heaven is saying. This multitude in heaven says that salvation, glory, honor, and power belong to the Lord our God. So I don't want us to read this as this multitude in heaven saying there's such a thing as salvation, glory, honor, and power that exists off by itself and God just possesses these qualities. No, what this multitude in heaven is saying is that salvation exists because our God is a saving God. Glory exists because God is himself glorious. Anything else that, that displays any kind of glory is only a minor reflection of the true glory that belongs to God's. That honor only exists because our God is honor. That something or someone is only honorable to the degree that they reflect or it reflects the honor that is our God. And power, that any power that exists in the universe only exists because God has allowed it to have power or be powerful. When we say that God is all-powerful, we mean that God is the source of all power, that no one has any power. You remember, it, I, I can't throw this up on the screen because I didn't think about this until we already started, but remember when Jesus was getting ready to be crucified and they challenge him and he says, you could have no power at all over me unless it was granted to you from heaven? That God the Father is the source of power, that all power belongs to him. He owns it. So no one has it if he doesn't. He's the source of what power is. So without our God, these things don't exist in the universe, right? Uh, and then we have another reason. For true and righteous are his judgments. So these judgments that God has made, specifically the judgment to overthrow the city Babylon, uh, the, the iteration of it that is in the book of Revelation, this judgment is true and it is righteous. Okay, now this, these are not statements that we, that the multitude in heaven feels that these are good judgments. That this multitude in heaven feels that they are righteous judgments. It is that they are objectively truthful and objectively righteous. So uh, we are going to go to philosophy class for just a minute. I know philosophy is probably not what you expected to get at church. Uh, I was a youth pastor for several years before I got here, and I don't know if any of my youth will ever remember me saying this. I know I said it multiple times. 
Everyone is a philosopher. It doesn't matter if you think you are or not. You are a philosopher. And one of the more important uh, distinctions to make in philosophy is objective truth versus subjective opinion or objective versus subjective um, morality, things like that. So what does it mean to be objective and what does it mean to be subjective? To understand this passage, we've got to define what it means to be objective and what it means to be subjective. So uh, I want to kind of give a couple of definitions and then give some examples and tell you, then tell you why it matters, okay? Uh, so an objective statement, I'm going to look down here at, at, at my notes. An objective statement is one that reflects things the way they are or defines what something is. And a subjective statement is an expression of personal experience, opinion, or preference. So I want to explain this difference by using one of... Uh, my favorite foods right now, tomatoes. Uh, I know I've got, I've got some folks in this church who grow really good tomatoes, and I look forward to getting those really good tomatoes anytime they give them to me. You are watching this, you know who you are, and I pray every day for your tomato harvest because it's delicious. Uh, but let's explain objective and subjective with tomatoes. Uh, so objectively, there is such a thing as a good tomato, correct? Like you look at your, a tomato and you know the qualities of a good tomato. You know that it's going to be bright red. It's going to be plump. It's not going to have any dings on the outside. You know that a tomato, a good tomato is going to have um, a, a good sturdy you know, plant. It's going to produce a lot. You're not going to get any rot anywhere on them. A good tomato is one that hasn't been picked apart by birds or bugs or, or anything like that. So, so that is what a good tomato is that even if you don't like tomatoes, you would agree that objectively, if, you're going, if, there, if a tomato is going to exist, this particular fruit, vegetable? This particular food, a tomato has a specific definition, and on top of that definition, as soon as you establish, okay, this fruit, vegetable thing is a tomato, you know that a tomato is good if it meets certain criteria, okay? So even if you don't like it, this is what a tomato is, and this is what a good tomato is. So that is objective. Now, subjective is, even if you've got the perfect tomato, you don't like it. That you can say objectively, this is a tomato, and this is an exemplary specimen of a tomato but I don't think tomatoes are good so on the one hand you can say a good tomato is a tomato that exemplifies tomato-ness but even that tomato I don't think is good because I don't like tomatoes someone would say that I don't know who that is but someone would say that so objective subjective so what these folks are saying is not that God is subjectively good, that they think they're, that, they're, that God has these attributes and they like them. So subjectively, we think God is good. We think his judgments are good because we like those judgments. No, 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 that's not what they're doing. What they're saying is that God is objectively good, that salvation is a good thing because it's part of God. 
Glory is good because it's part of God. Honor is good because it's part of God. Power is good because it's part of God. Truth is good because it's part of God. Righteousness is good because it's part of God. And anytime you appreciate these things, you appreciate them because they reflect the God in whose image you are made. Right? So, so think about this. Salvation, glory, honor, power belong to God. True and righteous are his judgments. You appreciate all of those things, right? Even if you're not a Christian, do you appreciate it when people are truthful with you? Even when you're not a Christian, do you appreciate it when people are, are, are righteous towards you? Do you appreciate something glorious? Do you appreciate uh, someone being honorable? Do you appreciate someone being strong? You appreciate all these things because you were made in the image of God. These are all parts of him and he's good. So God is objectively good and, and no one else is good in the way that God is. And Jesus even, Jesus even taught this, okay? So this religious ruler comes to him in Luke 18, verse 18, and says, now a certain ruler uh, asked him, saying, good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? So Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good but one, that is God. Now is Jesus saying he's not God and therefore he's not good? No. Jesus is God, so he is good. But the point Jesus is making, this is not Jesus denying his godhood. This is Jesus saying that there's only one person in the entire universe who is truly good, perfectly good in every way, shape, and form, every attribute and perfection in, in the proper measure, that there's only one in the universe that's like that, and everything else derives its goodness from his goodness. You know, so why does this matter? Why does this matter? Uh, for the very reason that Jesus questioned that religious official. If you're going to call somebody good, you better be talking about God. Because if they're not God, they're not really, truly, objectively good. Now, yeah, we say people are good all the time, right? You can probably think of somebody right now and you can say, oh, they're good people. He's a good guy. She's a good girl. But according to Jesus, they're not. We're making subjective statements that what we know of this person we think is good, but objectively, they're not because there is a standard for goodness, and it's God. Now, you can say, I know that there is an objective standard for goodness in God, but I don't like that objective standard of goodness, so I'm going to define goodness for myself. But that's like trying to, that's like trying to say a, a banana is a tomato because you don't like the color red. You can call it whatever you want, but that doesn't change what it actually is. When we jettison the objective goodness of God and start trying to define goodness on our own, we always degenerate into subjective preferences. For example, if you look at Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through 21, this is what Paul wrote. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. Now, how did this unrighteousness and ungodliness come about? Listen, who suppress the truth in unrighteousness, because what may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. What Paul is saying is that we as people, even if we don't even in our lostness before we knew Christ, we knew enough to know the difference between right and wrong, to know the difference between good and evil. And we decided that we didn't like that. That's why we sin. We know something's wrong, but we do it anyway because subjectively we think that objective wrong might be enjoyable. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, 
being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Because although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were thankful, but became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. We rejected objective truth because it was painful. It hurt. Objective truth kind of doesn't budge. When you look in the mirror and you say, this is what goodness is, objectively, it, again, we've talked about this before. This is like the little uh, thing at the amusement park that says you must be this tall to get on the ride. It's like goodness says you must be this tall to be considered good, and we step up to the wall and we barely reach the, the first mark above the floorboard. That objective goodness is terrifying because you know you don't meet the standard. So what do you do? You can either say, oh, I, I need help, or you can say, you know what, I don't like that standard. I'm going to come up with my own, and I'm going to reject the goodness that God is, and I'm going to come up with a definition of goodness all on my own, which is exactly what Paul says happens. And how does that end up shaking out? Romans chapter 1, verses 28 through 32. Even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a debased mind to do those things which are not fitting. Being filled with all unrighteousness, sexual immorality, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, evil-mindedness, their whisperers, backbiters, haters of God, violent, proud, boasters, inventors of evil things, disobedient to parents, <gasps> undiscerning, untrustworthy, unloving, unforgiving, unmerciful, who, knowing the righteous judgment of God that those who practice such things are deserving of death, not only do the same, but also approve of those who practice them. That we know right, we know wrong, but we don't like right and wrong, so we come up with our own definition of right and plug our ears and close our eyes and pretend that God is not there, pretend that goodness is what we make it is, that beauty is in the eye of the beholder, that I know that I know them, they're good folks. God, God wouldn't have any problem with them because I don't. Problem with that is that's not objectively true. Objective truth doesn't change. And God is the measure of objective truth. So the right and the wrong that you know, you only know truth if you know God. If you're making up your definition of goodness or righteousness on your own, you can do that all day long. But that's like trying to pay at the grocery store with monopoly money because you say you're rich. You don't actually have anything. Nothing that you have decided on your own really matters when it comes to standing in front of God on Judgment Day. When you can say, I did pretty good, and the standard is perfection. And God says, no, you didn't do good at all because I am the standard of good, and you haven't measured up. Does that put you in a predicament? Yes, it does. We have to have a way to measure up to that standard if we plan on, on, on standing in front of God. And the good news for you is that there is a way for you to, for you to be for you to measure up to that standard. Or rather, I should say, there's a way for someone to measure up to that standard for you. So first, God is objective goodness. We don't have the right to, to determine what goodness is for ourselves. We can't do that. Second, I want us to see that heaven is good by God's standard, not earth's. Hold on, pause. Do not interpret that as me saying heaven is not good. What I'm saying is that your definition of good for heaven might be wrong. Because see, if, if God is objectively good and our subjective definitions are good or wrong if they don't match him, what if our idea of what heaven is is also wrong? Because we're judging it based on what we think heaven is. That's a pretty subjective idea of what heaven is. So let's look at the actual passage again and see what's going on in heaven. 
Because he has judged the great harlot who corrupted the earth with her fornication and has avenged on her the blood of his servants shed by her. And again they said, Alleluia, her smoke rises up forever and ever. Now pause for just a second. This seems pretty violent, right? You've got the city Babylon and heaven is throwing a party because this city has just been ultimately and completely destroyed. Am I celebrating the destruction of human life? No, no, I'm not. You got to remember that this city Babylon, this one who's been overthrown, at this period in Earth's history is the epitome of anti-God life, that they can't stand him. They have pushed back against the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. They've got a counterfeit trinity of their own. They've got Satan who's running the show. They've got the beast, the Antichrist, kind of his understudy who's his front man on earth. And then you've got the false prophet who's kind of a fake Holy Spirit that is convincing people to worship the Antichrist and, and, and Satan. Um, whether or not they know that's what they're doing, that's what the false prophet is, is accomplishing. So uh, this city, Babylon, their home base is the epitome of anti-God life. So heaven is rejoicing because they have seen the final rebellion against God be put down. This city that has been throughout history doing the same thing over and over and over again. They're finally rejoicing because it's over, it's done, it's not happening anymore. Uh, so they are not alone in their rebellion against God. This city Babylon, if you go back, and I encourage you to go back and watch some of the previous sermons, this city had brought all the rest of the world along with it in its rebellion, and they have all kind of taken on her style of life, the, the exploitation, the immorality, the wickedness, the sin, the idolatry. They've all kind of picked that up from her and adopted it as their own. And heaven is rejoicing that this way of life has been destroyed, that this uh, institutionalized rebellion against God has finally been put down. Heaven does not like the way the world functions. Then, and I would go out on a limb, and it's not a very big limb, and say that heaven is probably not a big fan of the way the world runs now. Uh, the way that the world runs in rebellion against not God right now, heaven is not a fan of. And yet, when we imagine heaven, when you think about your, stop right now, be honest with yourself. When you think of your conception of heaven, what do you think of it as? What are you looking forward to heaven for? If you're a Christian, what is it about heaven that excites you? Uh, get that in your head. Hold it there. And now I'm going to read the lyrics of a country song. Maybe you didn't see that coming. I would put the lyrics on the screen, but I'm scared of copyright violations, so I'm just going to read them. Uh, this is the song Almost Home by Craig Morgan. So maybe you've heard it, maybe you've not. Um, I can't think of anything in the song that would be inappropriate, so you go listen to it when you want to. I'm sure you could find it on Spotify or YouTube or Apple Music or something like that. But the song is Almost Home by Craig Morgan. Uh, and the lyrics are as follows. He had plastic bags wrapped around his shoes. He was covered with the evening news. Had a pair of old wool socks on his hands. The bank sign was flashing, five below. It was freezing rain and spitting snow. He was curled up behind some garbage cans. I was afraid that he was dead. I gave him a gentle shake. When he opened his eyes, I said, old man, are you okay? He said, I just climbed out of a cottonwood tree. I was running from some honeybees. Drip drying in the summer breeze after jumping into Calico Creek. I was walking down an old dirt road. 
past the field of hay that had just been mowed. Man, I wish you'd just left me alone because I was almost home. He said I was coming round the barn about the time you grabbed my arm. When I heard Mama holler, son, hurry up. I was close enough for my old nose to smell fresh cobbler on the stove. And I saw Daddy loading up the truck, cane poles on the tailgate. Bobber's blowing in the wind since July 55. That's as close as I've ever been. He said, I just climbed out of a cottonwood tree. I was running from some honeybees, drip drying in the summer breeze after jumping into Calico Creek. I was walking down an old dirt road past a field of hay that had just been mowed. Man, I wish you'd just left me alone because I was almost home. I said, oh man, you're going to freeze to death. Let me drive you to the mission. He said, boy, if you'd left me alone right now, I'd be fishing. Now, it's a heartstring tugger of a song, isn't it? Like, you, you, you get in your mind, this man, he's just, he was so close to having everything back that he remembered as a kid that there wouldn't have been any of this pain in his life anymore. He'd be, he'd be at home with mama and daddy again, and he'd be running and, and climbing in the trees and fishing and, 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 and enjoying all the, but, but here's, here's the, the problem. At what part of his vision of heaven, did he ever acknowledge Jesus? At what part of this vision of heaven did he ever pay attention to God who would have been at the center? He said nothing about the angels crying holy. He said nothing about the unapproachable brightness of the throne room of God. He said nothing about the angels being so in awe of the holiness of God that they have to keep themselves off the ground because it's holy, because God's throne is on it. That they have to cover their faces with their wings because they can't stare straight at Him. He said nothing about that. That heaven was purely His vision of this earth, but better. Everything that He loved about this earth, it was Him-centric. And I'm not saying it's a bad song. It's an emotional song. It's fun to listen to, but it's bad theology. Heaven is not us-centered. Heaven is God-centered. I'll prove it. Heaven's a little bit more like this. Isaiah chapter 6, verses 1 through 5. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Did you notice how when Isaiah saw heaven, the first thing he mentions is God? Above it stood six seraphim. Each one had six wings. With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one cried to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of its glory. And the posts of the door were shaken by the voice of him who cried out. And the house was filled with smoke. So I said, Woe is me, I am undone, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Heaven is not about us. Heaven is about King Jesus. Heaven is not about the way we would envision this perfect world to be. Heaven is about being in the presence of God. Heaven is heaven because God is there. Let me tell you something. If the lyrics to this song, I almost held them up. I don't know, can I do that? If the lyrics to this song are what heaven is like, but there's no God there, if that's what heaven's like, but I don't get to see Jesus, that's not heaven. That's hell. That's eternity apart from Him. 
What makes heaven heavenly is that Jesus is there. We live in an unclean world. So when we imagine heaven, and we imagine it by our subjective definition of goodness, and listen to me, I appreciate where Craig Morgan's coming from. I get it. I'm looking forward to seeing my nanny again. I'm looking forward to seeing my great aunt again. I'm looking forward to seeing my papa that I never got to meet because of cancer. I'm looking forward to all of that. And those of you that are looking forward to, to meeting all of your loved ones, seeing them again, seeing folks you hadn't seen since you were, were little that, that died in the Lord, I am appreciative of that. And I don't want to take that from you. But I guarantee you, when you get there, if you, if you are a Christian, by the way, that's the only way to end up in heaven. When you get there, you could line up your grandmama, your granddaddy, your mom, your dad, your aunts, your uncles, your brothers, your sisters. You could line them all up on the sides of the streets of gold and all of them could be holding out their hands to shake you, grab you, and you would walk straight past them and go straight to Jesus because that's the one you're going to want to see first. I love my nanny. I love Jesus more. I love my aunt. I love Jesus more. I love my papa. I love Jesus more. What makes heaven heaven is the presence of God. So where in the world do you get the idea that you can despise God and despise his people your entire life and then expect heaven? Heaven is God's presence. If you don't want him now, why would you want an eternity of him then? That's what heaven is. Heaven is not our subjective definition of everything we would like to have on this earth, just all given to us for free that we get to just enjoy regardless of whether or not we've loved Jesus and whether or not we've been forgiven of our sin, whether or not we've cried out for him. No, heaven is a lot like Isaiah's experience. When you stand there and you stand in front of God and you realize that you're in front of objective truth, goodness, and righteousness, and you will come face to face for the first time with just how inferior you are. By the way, me too. So what about us? I'm a man of unclean lips. I dwell among a people of unclean lips. I live in a world of unclean lips. But I, don't, I want heaven. I don't want the alternative. So what can fit me for heaven? Who can make me qualified to live there, to dwell there in the presence of God? Who can do that? Jesus can. Therefore, He is also able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. For such a high priest was fitting for us, who is holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, and has become higher than the heavens, who does not need daily as those high priests to offer up sacrifices, first for his own sins and then for the people's. For this he did once for all when he offered up himself. Y'all, heaven is nothing like this world. Thank God. It's totally different. I don't want a better version of this world. I don't want this world in heaven. I want that one. 
I don't want to just tinker with this and fix it and iron out the kinks. This world is the kink. I need a new one. And that's exactly what God has for his children. Listen, if you're a Christian, this world that you're living in right now is the closest to hell you are ever going to get. If you don't give your life to Christ, this world right here is the closest to heaven you're ever going to get. And I promise you, for anybody who's living on this world in the year 2020, that's saying something. Come to Jesus. There's nothing keeping you from coming to Jesus right now. There's nothing from keeping you. There's nothing keeping you from crying out, Jesus, forgive me of my sin. I believe you died for me. I believe you're alive today. And I believe that you can fit me for heaven. You can forgive me and purify me so I can stand in the presence of God and I can enjoy heaven as heaven because your Father, your, your presence, your Father's presence, the presence of the Holy Spirit, the presence of God is what makes heaven heaven and I want that. And Jesus will forgive you and make you his right now. And you can have the guarantee that you will have a heaven totally unlike this world. This world's not even fit to be compared to it. And then when God makes the new world, makes a new heaven and new earth, you get that too. And it'll be completely and totally unlike this one. You can have that. So, heaven is not good by our definitions in the sense that we couldn't come up with something as good as what heaven is. Heaven is good by God's definition. And God is good enough that he was good on your behalf so that you could enjoy it if you'll just come to Christ. So heaven's good by God's definition not by ours and then finally i want us to see that christians should rejoice in god's goodness revelation 19 5 says then a voice came from the throne saying praise our god all you his servants and those who fear him both small and great now i don't want you to miss this because i only have one verse on the screen what has just happened that provokes the angels to say rejoice all you his servants and people who fear him it's the overthrow of babylon now, I, I want to preface at the outset. I am not talking about celebrating the death of the wicked, okay? I'm not talking about doing that. I don't celebrate the death of the wicked because if, if, it, if the wicked is the one that died, then they've not given their life to Christ. And I, I, I'm not going to celebrate somebody being thrown into hell. That's dark, that's wicked, that's evil, that's macabre. I would not be doing that. Even God doesn't do that. Ezekiel chapter 18, verses 30 through 32 Therefore, I will judge you, O house of Israel, everyone according to his ways, says the Lord God. But then look at how God feels about that. He says, repent and turn from all your transgressions so that iniquity will not be your ruin. Cast away from you all the transgressions which you've committed and get yourselves a new heart and a new spirit. Why should you die, O house of Israel? For I have no pleasure in the death of the one who dies, says the Lord God. Therefore, turn and live. That God doesn't enjoy judging People who, who reject repentance. He doesn't enjoy that. He doesn't like punishing people. He doesn't like judging and executing judgment. He doesn't enjoy doing that. So I'm not saying that we should rejoice over the destruction of people, but y'all listen. James 4.4 4 says, Adulterers and adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whoever therefore wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. We should not be making apologies for the wickedness of this world. When the world does something that is wicked, 
Call it out. Say, oh, well, I don't want to. I, I respect that, that, that person. I respect that, that country. I respect that you know, whatever. Y'all, listen. The world is wicked. Period. All the nations of the world are wicked. Scripture says it. Jesus said it. We saw it earlier in this sermon. Why did you call me good? There's only one that's good. That is God. Jesus being God, he is good. The Holy Spirit being God, he is good. The Father being God, he is good. The rest of us, individually, if we're not good, we're certainly not good corporately. Corporately, we become Babylon. So when we say, oh, well, I shouldn't, man, I, I really feel sad that, man, just think of all that. Think of all that that was destroyed. Is heaven weeping when Babylon falls? No. No. Babylon has, has been anti-God its entire existence. Heaven is celebrating. So listen, I beg and plead and cry out for people to please repent and to give their life to Jesus Christ. I don't want anybody to perish. But when this world is gone and the new world comes in, I'm not going to miss this one. I'm praying, come Lord Jesus, as soon as possible. As soon as he feels like it, come on. Don't delay it. Well, I, well, I just wish you know if we could wait, if we could wait, there all there, there might be one more. There might be one more. I, I mentioned earlier, I was a youth pastor for five years before I came here, and I loved all five of those years. I treasure those people. I'm still friends with them today, and you know it hurt when I left. God was calling me here, so I didn't regret it, but it hurt. And I told my wife, well, there are some of the younger ones that I really wish I would have been able to go the whole way with, see them through graduation. And she said, you know what, though? Getting them to graduation, there would have been another younger group that would have come up behind them, and you would have made friends with them, and you would have gotten to know and love them, too. And then two years later, you would have said, man, I really want to see them through graduation. And it's, it's, eventually, you've got to say, when God says it's time, it's time. And you go with it, and you don't look back. The new world is kind of like that, that eventually God's going to say it's time. And for us as Christians, we've got to be looking forward to the world to come and not be looking back. Celebrate the ending of the old and get ready for the advent of the new. Look at Hebrews chapter 11, verses 13 through 16. It's one of my favorite verses in the Bible. These all died in faith, not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off, were assured of them, embraced them, and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. For those who say such things declare plainly that they seek a homeland. And truly, if they called to mind that country from which they'd come out, they would have had opportunity to return. But now they desire a better, that is, a heavenly country. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them that when we say we're strangers and pilgrims on this earth we should be looking forward to our homeland we should be looking forward to the soil that we set our feet on that we say this is my forever home i'm not just passing through anymore. this is where i belong that this world this is a pilgrim world 
we're passing through this. And, and when it doesn't reflect the world the way my father created it, I've got a responsibility to say it. Not make apologies for it. Not pretend that, oh, well, you know, sometimes I've got to take the lesser of two evils. No, the scripture says you don't take evil at all. Well, then what is there in this world for me? Patience. Because there's a better world coming. Be a witness to your Father. Honor your Lord Jesus Christ. Look forward to the world to come. And live as a citizen of that world in this world. Be salt and light. Let people see the, the, what the kingdom coming is about. Invite them to join you as a citizen of that kingdom. Be careful that you're a pilgrim here and that you don't find yourself mourning the fall of Babylon when it comes. Look forward to the world to come. So God is objectively good. That's important for us because we need to know what objective good is so that we know that we're not objectively good so that we know that when we stand before Him in heaven that as unclean as we are, as unkempt as we are, as impure as we are, there is one Jesus who has been objectively good on our behalf. He gives us His righteousness so that we can have a place in that heaven. And when we look forward to that heaven, we need to not look back behind us and, and, and mourn this one as we leave it in our rear view, go into our home. That there's a lot of encouragement there that you can look around you in the middle of this virus and you can say, you know what? This virus is at home in this world. It's not at home in mine. Unemployment, it's at home in this world. It's not at home in mine. Sickness, it's at home in this world. It's not at home in mine. I'm leaving it behind. One day they're going to be in my rear view and I'm never going back to find them and I don't mourn their passing. Wickedness, same thing. It's at home in this world. It's not at home in mine. You've got something and someone to look forward to. Objective goodness. He's named God, and he loved you enough to send his son Jesus to die for you. If you've got any questions about what it means to become a Christian and gaining citizenship in that world to come so that you can look forward to it and leave this world in your rear view someday, uh, then I would love a chance to talk with you about that. Reach out to us on Facebook. Shoot me an email. Give me a phone call. If you've got my number, I would love to sit down and chat with you um, from at least six feet away uh, and let you know uh, how you can know the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, I want to make a couple of announcements uh, before we're done, uh, if you are watching this on Facebook, head on over to stapletonbaptist.org. Uh, join our email list there. There's a, a big button on the rotator. There's some big pictures that kind of scroll uh, as, as you just sit on the main page. There's one there that says join our email list. Um, I'd love for you to do that so we can keep in touch. Also, there's uh, if you've got kids or if you've got preschoolers at home, stapletonbaptist.org has got a link to Lifeway Kids at Home, which is kind of like Netflix except... Uh, for kids, and it keeps them doing Bible study, keeps them in the Word. Um, there's some really neat stuff on there. If you're VBS kids, you can go back and watch all the old VBS movies. It's crazy. Um, so all that's available through Lifeway Kids at Home. Uh, we just installed online giving. There's a tutorial for that on Facebook if you haven't seen it. Uh, that's all I'm going to say about online giving. I don't want to talk about money a whole lot if I don't have to. Uh, just so you all know that online giving is there. It is available, and you can do that at stapletonbaptist.org. It is right in the top right at the screen. If this is the website, you'd find it right there on stapletonbaptist.org on the homepage. Um, so that's stapletonbaptist.org. I encourage you to go there. Uh, if you're watching this on stapletonbaptist.org and you use Facebook, 
Head on over to facebook.com backslash Stapleton Baptist GA. It's a great place for breaking news. Um, and that's where you find all of the, the, the stuff that we do the instant that it happens. You don't even have to wait on the email. So you can uh, like that page on Facebook. You can follow that page on Facebook. Appreciate it if you'd share that um, with your friends and family who don't have a church home. We'd love to be able to minister to them in the middle of this crazy virus mess. So I think that is actually everything that I've got today. If there's anybody out there with an absolutely critical announcement I have forgotten to make, uh, please shoot me an email or something and let me know, and I'll be glad to get that out there as well. I love you guys. Y'all take care. Uh, Y'all be safe, and we'll see y'all again on Wednesday. Y'all take care.